Old School Essentials Retro Adventure Game is written by Gavin Norman, published by Necrotic Gnome under the Open Gaming Licence, and the version of the core rules that I'm discussing is pre-release version 1. I forgot to do an intro. Can't put it out without an intro. I'm in the street. Sorry if there's traffic noise. But here we go. It's Dave Aldridge. It's Deeper Centre. It's Monday, which means a review. And is this dungeon door opening or closing? I don't know. And what's the significance? I'm experimenting with walking and talking. Got to do a bit of walking today, so I'll do my preamble to this review on the move. You might get some environmental noises, I might get accosted in the street, you might hear my conversations. I don't know. So I thought I'd talk firstly about what I want to get out of old school essentials. I probably picked up PDFs of most of the retro clone games, and one thing is. I understand that a lot of effort has been made around the presentation of old school essentials, not just beautiful art, the arrangement of the books, which I can I can take or leave, nice to have options, but around the sort of presentation of the pages, you know, a double page spread for each section of the rules, things being easy to find. Um, and that I do find appealing. I don't like spending time flicking around rule books or searching PDFs. So that alone is attractive. But I have said on previous podcasts, my old school experience isn't primarily with retro clone games. Uh, although I've been playing RPGs since the mid-80s. I didn't start with Dungeons & Dragons. I've said before, I didn't get into Dungeons & Dragons until 3rd edition. It's a very different kind of game. Um, I actually loved the tactical tabletop experience once I got to... uh, once I realised what it was about, which is something I never expected to like. I'd been mostly involved in White Wolf storytelling games which define themselves against that. So the the things that grabbed me about 3rd edition um, quite surprising when I reflect on them. But my my first foray into RPGs was actually via it was via the Riddling Reaver, which was a standalone campaign book for Fighting Fantasy, the introductory role-playing game. Uh, actually, it had complete rules in it, so it didn't even require that book, which was good because when I picked up the Riddling Reaver, I couldn't get hold of a of a version of that book for love nor money. Fighting Fantasy game books were selling well in the shops, but not that not that particular one didn't stock it in my local WH Smiths Um, but it's yeah it's quite a nice story actually I used to go into the library couldn't afford to buy the books used to go into the library and comb they had one particular display and I used to comb it for new fighting fantasy game books you could spot them a mile off they had a lovely um, in the UK printing at the time they had a lovely sort of green banner across the top so you'd get this evocative art with that green banner and I'd run over to see if there was one I hadn't read before and the Riddling Reaver was one of those I picked it up and I thought it was just another fighting fantasy game book and I took it home and I was trying to trying to work out how to navigate it the sort of standard rules section you normally get the front was quite different it was much longer Um, and it took a while for it to dawn on me what kind of experience was being described this is something you do as a group it's collaborative this isn't a fight and fancy 
game book what's going on and of course once I realized what kind of experience it was I was then on to members of my family you got to play this with me you got to play this with me they weren't interested eventually I managed to find a group at school and I was communicating this wonderful new activity and, and we were sold after that but but you know that that's largely where my old school experience happened very 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 simple rule set which I mean meant that you could improvise whatever you liked on the fly low prep suits you when, when you you know you're just being hassled at school oh yeah so can we can we do some more can we do some more just get your dice out of the bag get your book out and you're good to go um, yeah, so the, so the Riddling Reaver, which I still, I may do a podcast on that at some point. I, I still think it's one of the great standalone campaign books. Um, just some lovely ideas in there. It was actually my first encounter with random tables. There are a couple of random encounter tables. Um, beautifully evocative art. Um, and it did. It had the complete, you know, the introductory fight and fantasy game was a very... Com- you know simple rule set but you know you could do it all in a couple of pages but it was there it was complete it was a whole campaign with complete rules and over the years I've played that campaign so many different times I've converted it to different systems I've run it as a as an authentic old school experience uh, of course shortly after that picked up Dungeoneer the advanced fighting fantasy game and then I really began to to think about the hobby and understand the hobby and that's when I started drawing me dungeon maps and planning scenarios um, but all of that is by way of saying that I don't have nostalgia for the early editions of Dungeons and Dragons so when I'm playing the old school games I quite like I've talked about this on other podcasts I quite like those those games that that create consciously create a particular experience or particular aspects of that early kind of childhood experience so I really enjoy uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics. I've played Dungeon Crawl Classics. I've run that particularly, run that a lot, done it at cons, run a fairly long campaign with it. Uh, well, you call it a campaign, but <laughs> players, characters were dying left, right, and centre. So it was a bit like Ship of Theseus. There was a kind of continual thread, but I don't think one character lasted particularly long, um, you know, <laughs> from one session to the next. They were mostly being uh, re- recreated. But I really enjoy Dungeon Crawl Classics, and I'll talk about that some other, some other point. Um, I'm very excited about the Black Hack, although I haven't had much of a chance to run it yet. Um, but I like those games which are, you know, coherent design enterprises. Lots of things. When I look at all the retro clones, I can't compare them with the earliest editions. I don't. I think I've got copies of most of them on PDF. But I've not really spent spent much time with them. Um, but there's lots of things I just don't have nostalgia for. Um, you know, rolling D6 for initiative or to open doors. The whole thief skills being on percentile when nothing else is. I, I can't find justification for much of this. On oh, Thaco, of course, armour classed, fixed Thaco tables. I've never heard an argument um, that says anything in favour of Thaco apart from nostalgia. And that's a nostalgia that I don't have. So why have I got so excited about Old School Essentials? Really, it's just that I, I, I plan, because there's been so much interest in it, I plan to use it as my Rosetta Stone, if you like, for Old School compatibility. So if I'm, if I'm putting out content or if I want to make statements about things which would be compatible with a general Old School experience, then this game is going to be my, my reference point for that. Uh, I'm just going to, you know, I'll, I'll use the monster lists, I'll use the 
rules as described in here as as the way that i i generally interpret interpret things from a more general old school experience what that means of course is that i have no views whatsoever on on how authentic the presentation will all be in these books um, i'm going to treat them as a you know as i would any other new rpg product i imagine that there is considerable innovation in the way even if the rules are 100% compatible 100% faithful I imagine just from flicking through that there's considerable innovation in the way that they're presented so things that I've noticed already is you've got a particular presentation of the experience actually I noticed very reminiscent of a page that I like from the black hack where you've got a numbered list of how to manage a turn so it basically is it's the moves that you go through when you're running a dungeon experience or a wilderness experience um, yeah maybe the maybe the word moves is right maybe it's even slightly reminiscent of the way that gaming is presented in Powered by the Apocalypse I don't want to be, I'm not going to push that too hard but the idea of having a page that sets out you know what's going on around the table what happens at any particular moment what what's the order of things what happens next um, from my understanding, early games often didn't do a very good job of explaining what kind of experience you were supposed to be having. And I suspect there's innovation there. And from what I, from what I can see at the moment, I'm very much liking that. But as I say, I won't be able to offer any thoughts on the extent to which the rules have been authentically presented or interpreted. All right, so I'll get started. I'm doing this one from my car, trying that out you're not really a proper anchorite until you've done from one from your car normally in your driveway <laughs> i'm not in my driveway um, but this is where i am today i'm focusing on just the core rules section so there are five early release pdfs uh, that i've got access to from back in this kickstarter and i've got enough to say just about the uh, the core rules section i should explain about that there are two different available formats for old school essentials. You can get all of the basic rules, including all the spells and uh, class information, in one um, beautiful-looking core rulebook, or you can buy the box set of five uh, modular sections. And as I said before, I had no strong feelings about which of these I would get. Um, and for a while, I was then uh, in the situation of Buridan's ass tethered equidistantly between two equally appealing bales of hay and I was in a quietism of despair and inactivity until I realised unlike the ass that I could just um, add both formats to the Kickstarter so eventually I've got both of those coming uh, but the early release has released the five separate sections it's intended to be a modular game so there will be other sections already I've added um, as a backer you can get um, some advanced rules which I think at least include some more classes maybe druid and illusionist and some more spells and I think that's the idea you've got the course set but there will be other modules that you can add in and out to taste as early release PDFs there are some uh, gaps in the art so the, the the cover for this tantalizingly says cover art by Peter Mullen in progress 
the art that I can see uh, is very nice indeed. Uh, I'll say something about that when I get to some of the pictures, but it's got a real sort of, uh, in many cases, a real Appendix N flavour. Some of it is reminiscent of uh, the artwork, which I very enjoy, the best artwork from Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, so there are these gaps in the artwork. Overall, it's a very tidy text. It's been well proofread. Um, I really enjoy the the more recent RPG innovation of getting the PDFs early release out there to all the backers before the print version arrives. So you can really um, iron out all of the various typos and, and slips with the rules. Um, I think that's a really good innovation. Uh, but I, I don't think there's much to do with this text. So early on in the text, yes, about this game, page three, we're given a summary of what the game is. Um, we are told that the game focuses on fantastic adventure, um, that it's old school and therefore styled after the beloved games of the 70s and 80s, that it's relatively rules light, um, that it's streamlined uh, that the books are carefully structured for maximum usability during play. Um, the, the, the short summary there is that I think that is absolutely true. Everything is on a double page spread that you could want. Um, I, I, I really think uh, that he's done a good job there and that it's a modular game. I've said a bit about that. If you're new to old school games, you're directed to the quick primer for old school gaming by Matthew Finch, which I knew about, and then the Principia Apocrypha, which I didn't know about. Um, and I think those are both useful references early on in the book. Um, the summary of adventure gaming is that it concerns peril and adventure. And then we're told that uh, the danger and reward of adventure is most commonly found in two types of locations, wilderness and dungeons. It doesn't mention urban play particularly. Um, but there are lots of rules in here for uh, travelling through wilderness and for the, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of dungeoneering. Then we're given a summary of the fantasy genre. Um, four key elements of the fantastic. The first one is treasure. This is um, sort of classic Appendix N stuff. Heroism isn't really listed. Treasure, that's why, uh, that's the lure, it says, that pulls many an adventurer into perilous realms. Monsters, of course. Um, and, oh, I'll flag up now. A lot of the flavour text in the book has very much got an Appendix N flavour, pulling in all of those weird elements that went in. So we're, it's listed here that you're going to have biological experiments, beast men, invasive alien species and beings from strange dimensions. Um, so just flagging up all of those uh, weirder elements that go towards Appendix N flavoured fantasy. There are examples throughout in the examples and in the art. I'd say the art has a very Appendix N flavour, but there are reference um, in terms of adventuring locations. There are references to the uncharted reaches of space uh, and to artefacts of alien technology. Very much, um, yeah, flagging up all of those weird influences that it pulls in. So you've got treasure, you've got monsters, you've got magic, and then you've got demi-humans or sentient species. Those are listed as the four key elements of the fantastic in this game. Moving on, you've got notes on compatibility and heritage. So it's very important to the game that it says Old School Essentials is 100% compatible with the 1981 edition of the world's most popular fantasy RPG. And then you've got some notes about compatibility with later editions and ease of conversion. 
um, yeah, tantalizing double page spread there with a reference to some artwork that's not there yet. Um, yeah, then you've got a summary of the core rules and terminology. Um, Thaco is the presented as the central rule, and then ascending armor class is in a sidebar as an optional rule. Um, I was worried about this, but I think that is done reasonably comfortably throughout. I've mentioned before, my taste would be to have replaced to hit armor class with ascending armor class, which I think fixes it and leaves Thacko with, with nothing to appeal apart from nostalgia. Um, but looking at the other books, uh, this nestles quite nicely into the game. In, in each case, the second armor class score listed for a, for a creature is according to the ascending armor class rules. And when you get to creature attack bonuses, again, uh, it doesn't jar too much that you've got both of those presented. And I think that's a really good move that a game that claims to be so authentic to the old school experience would include ascending armor class. I suppose some of my frustrations are that other aspects of the old school rule set which are not easy to justify are left in um, and I'd be keen I'd be keen to hear people's thoughts about about what I'm going to say about these rules because you, th those of you who are real old school gamers um, will will probably notice that a lot of my gripes with this set aren't really with this set they are just with the old school rule set it's probably going to be clear as I uh, as I can carry on this review um, that whilst I would describe myself as an old school gamer um, I think that's very much in the sense of the spirit of old school games rather than the particular rule set but I'm keen to hear what, uh, what what responses people have to my thoughts I'm sure all of these criticisms have been made before uh, get into character creation the standard character creation method is to roll 3d6 and then you can ditch uh, a very poor character if the referee allows you its referee by the way uh, in this set um, here there are some rules for ability score adjustment which I must confess to never having seen before um, you can adjust adjust your prime requ requisite your class's most important ability uh, on a two for one rate so you can reduce intelligence strength and wisdom by two down to a minimum of nine and for each two of those points you can um, increase your prime requisite ability i haven't been seeing that before um, and then the optional rule for rolling hit points so that your character might survive beyond first level is that you can re-roll ones and twos i think that's quite nice i think that's just intended to apply at character generation i don't know um, then you get into ability scores, description of what you can do with the various ability scores, and then your various tables of adjustments. You've got your standard um, melee adjustments, you know, down to minus three or up to plus three uh, based on strength, your missile combat adjustments based on dexterity, armor class, and so on, initiative adjustments based on dexterity although of course that's an adjustment to a d6, and then you've got strength, you've got your modifiers to your d6 chance to open a door uh, that's something which is based on strength but still rolled on a d6 um, i may as well say it now the roll under roll under stat option is presented in this book as something the referee might sometimes want to do one of my frustrations with old school gaming is once you've arrived at the roll under stat it seems to me that a justification for a lot of these other um, things which you still roll on d6 or for the thief's um, percentile abilities just gets a little bit 
shakier. I'll say more about the sort of the thief's percentile stuff later on. Um, but it, it just jars with me that you've, you've, you've got the possibility to roll under strength. You could do that with doors, but that's still on a one in six chance, which then needs to be specifically modified in the strength table. Uh, I find that frustrating. Um, oh, there's, uh, yeah, there's a rule... Uh, with charisma, that charisma modifies the maximum number of retainers that you can have and their loyalty. I, I thought that was a house rule that I'd come up with. Um, obviously, uh, that, that's been there um, for some time. I had no idea that that was in the rules. Uh, it's on alignment, languages and so on. One thing I like, um, although as I've said before, this, the intention here is that the game is 100% compatible with that old edition. I think the rules are presented in a very different way. In particular, I think the rules are gathering together all sorts of clarifications that have followed after the, the original expression of the rule set. I don't know. I may be wrong about that. As I say, I can't remember um, those older rule sets. Um, but I, I, I like that um, you've got everything together here and it's presented in such a way that it answers the questions that have often come up in play. Um, so there's even rules here about inheritance. Players may wish to create a will for their characters to leave wealth behind for an heir, i.e. your replacement character. If the referee allows this, there'll be a 10% inheritance tax. The heir must be of this kind. You can only do it once. I quite like that. Lots of things seem to have um, have been incorporated here that, that, that might have come up as part of, of frequently asked questions or clarifications along the way. Something that's interesting... Oh, yes, a beautiful, evocative, colourful bit of artwork there. I've talked about that. Very reminiscent of, 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 of the best art in Dungeon Crawl classics. Really evocative of Appendix N. Party organisation. I'm told here that the, the ideal size of a group is between six and eight characters. That surprises me. Um, I, I, I've always thought of sort of four to six as an ideal party size. Um, perhaps that is, that is common to uh, maybe the older modules that they're directed at, at, at significantly larger parties. Um, I thought the ideal group would be slightly smaller, but that, that, that I found an interesting surprise. Then you've got some guidance here on party organisation, which, which is another good example of, of things which I can't imagine being in the earliest iterations of the rules, but really capture a lot of the, the wisdom that's grown up around gaming tables. So we've got rules on marching order, very useful for when the GM wants to know, the referee, sorry, wants to know who to call on for a perception role or who to surprise with a trap. There's a suggestion that one of the players might be the caller or the spokesperson for the group. Uh, there's another suggestion that one of the players might be the mapper. And then there are, there's some guidance on dividing treasure. Very useful. Many, uh, I've witnessed many, many hours of bickering amongst the players about exactly what they do with their magic items and who gets what magic item and um, how to divvy up the, the value of the treasure. Well, you've got guidance on that here. Yeah, on page 21 here, there's a beautiful picture um, psychedelic colour scheme, a, a character, probably some kind of sorcerer's character amongst some ruins, lots of horned skulls and, and a general um, atmosphere of foreboding. Very flavourful indeed. I'm, I'm really impressed by the art that I've seen so far. Time, weight and movement, interesting things here. You've got, yes, a clarification of the language of rounds and turns. That's pretty standard, but... Um, really quite clearly expressed in here I think um, 
Roll, uh, guidance on tracking movement, movement rate. Here's the thing I haven't seen. Um, weight is measured in coins. Since, you know, it's number of coins and amount of treasure that, that, that you're really going to have the discussions about whether you can carry all that out of the dungeon. We're given then other equipment when weight is given is given in coins. I didn't, I didn't realise that, that was a feature of old rule sets. Maybe it's an innovation, but I really like it. You also have a note here on paying attention to resources. Um, that resource management element is flagged up here that that's an important part of the intended game experience. And it says the referee should pay attention to resources that the party consumes. For example, food, water, fuel for light sources, durations of spells or magical effects and so on. And then one thing that's really nice is when you get these little bits of procedural guidance on how to manage uh, a round or a turn later on, you get guidance on when the referees should be paying attention to the depletion of, uh, of, of resources and to spell duration and so on. I think that's some really nice elements which I can't imagine were in the, the earliest expressions of the rule set but which come from many years of experience of, of sort of clarifying when you do what so I very much enjoy that. You've got two sets of rules for encumbrance. Encumbrance is offered as an optional rule in itself then you've got a basic and a more detailed rule. One frustration I have, you've got this maximum load that characters can carry of 1,600 coins. It doesn't seem to be linked to strength. <laughs> Opening doors is linked to strength, but the load that you can carry is not. The basic encumbrance rules, which I would definitely be preferring, um, don't bother tracking weapons, armour and adventuring gear. They simply track amount of treasure, amount of swag that you're trying to carry out of the dungeon. And then you've got a nice basic table um, where you've got a movement rate, two different uh, values, whether you're laden with treasure or not. And then it's different for each uh, type of armour that you're wearing. So I like that. Everything else you can say is looked after in the character class. And you're just really worried about... Um, what kind of armor you're wearing and how heavily laden you are. Then there's a detailed encumbrance rule which assigns a coin value to uh, to various bits of equipment and then gives you a movement rate um, attached to that uh, to that coin value, including your armor as well. Uh, yeah, whatever you prefer. As I say, it's just slightly frustrating to me that, that that doesn't vary depending on character strength. But I suppose simplicity is the rule. I'm happy with that, but I also like a bit of unity. If you're going to modify one thing by strength, it seems like you'd modify the other obvious things as well. Um, yes, checks, damage and saves. Page 24, here is where we're offered the ability check, you know, where the referee wants it, so I suppose it's an optional rule. They may call for a roll under an ability on D20. Great. As I say, oh yeah, and then you can modify that from minus four for a relatively easy ability check to plus four for something very difficult. It seems to me, once you've arrived at that, then a lot of the other things that you might want to do on D6 make a lot less sense. Uh, I will say something here. It always frustrated me, um, you know, the thief tables, the thief abilities. I heard somebody else talking about this on a podcast recently on Anchor. I can't remember who. Someone will probably remind me. Um, but I was interested by the discussion, and I, and I think he was right. Um, I can't remember who it was. I apologise for that. Um, but the suggestion was that you know, thieves look like they can do all these cool things, but actually they're 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 often being set up to fail. The, the percentile values are very low at early levels, so it looks like a thief's just going to attempt a whole load of a, a whole load of thief-like things and fail. Uh, and the suggestion for addressing that, which I like, 
um, was that these are extras um, that the thief can roll in addition. So the thief can have all of the other kinds of any other kinds of opportunities for sneaking and finding traps or whatever that you would allow generically to the players but they get their percentile roles as something extra an opportunity to do something cool um, but having done that they still get the fallback that any other character might get and I quite like that um, but what I like more are those old school games that stay more to the spirit of old school rather than to the rule system and give the thief abilities which link to to the same mechanic as everything else but you know that I, as i said before maybe this is because um I, you know i just have, don't really have any nostalgia for the old rule set and that comes up with saving throws as well so the five standard saving throws are here death or poison wands paralysis breath attacks spells rods and staves um you know i go back and forth on this it seems kind of fun um to say look these can actually be quite extensive in their intention and there are all sorts of effects that you can assign to one or other saving throw. Um, but on the other hand, it just I've tried that. I've tried to say, okay, this effect is like a wand. This one's like a death or poison. And I know um, some effects in the game's rules are treated that way. Later on in this book, there's an example of a, track, a trap, which is a, a stone slab falls on you and you roll against paralysis or petrification. But actually, having a stone slab fall on you isn't like paralysis or petrification. And I can't see any rhyme or reason for either for dividing up effects this way or for assigning different sets of breaks to the character classes. I, c I can't really understand within the flavour of the different classes why it is that some get better roles for some of these effects and some, some for others. I'm sure people have blogged about this or talked about this before. Um, and I've tried to, I've, I've tried to get into the gaminess of it, um, but I just can't, I just think third edition or whatever other edition introduced um, reflex fortitude and will saves did did the right thing and I like those old school spirit games that use those saves as a clear rationale for that can you dodge it do you need to resist it with your endurance do you need to resist it with your with your mental uh, with your mental strength that makes sense so I notice king of dungeons uses dexterity reflex and will um, I enjoy dungeon uh, sorry reflex fortitude and will uh, I enjoy that dungeon crawl classics does as well I just don't have any nostalgia for the old saving throws I'm sorry some nice yeah I said this lots of sort of FAQ type clarification scattered around so for example uh, destruction of items if a character is killed by a destructive spell or a special attack their equipment is assumed to be destroyed uh, I'm sure many a referee has made such a ruling but it's nice to have these kinds of things which do come up specified for you yeah then we get into traps then we get into traps um, yes, so there's a whole, again, a double page spread on hazards and challenges, covers a lot of what might come up in play, climbing, darkness, falling, losing direction, starvation, swimming, and uh, encounter tables for wandering monsters. We're not quite at traps yet, sorry, I'm misreading my, my notes. What we get to now is the first of those sort of sets of um, descriptions of sequence of play. Um, 
So you get a double page spread on the sequence of play for dungeon adventuring. I'm just going to go through this one really quickly, but you get one for dungeon adventuring, one for wilderness, one for waterborne adventuring. I really like it. Um, there's only four steps in dungeon adventuring. I still think it's useful. Number one, referee checks for wandering monsters. Number two, party decides what actions they're going to take. Number three, referee describes what happens. If there are monsters here, then you go to the encounters sequence of play. And then at end of turn, number four, the referee updates time records, special attention to light sources, spell durations, and the party's need to rest. I really like that sort of procedural presentation there. Incidentally, the rest of page 28, that's a very small um, box, is all devoted to doors, locked doors, stuck doors, secret doors, doors swinging shut, monsters and doors, listening at doors. <laughs> you might think it's surprising for a rules-like game to have so many rules linked to doors. But of course, that's just pointing out um, the importance of doors to the dungeon experience. Oh yeah, then we get to traps. Uh, you got rules on searching, and then rules on traps. Useful having this all together in one place. It's all on a page. You've got movement, resting, searching, traps, wandering monsters. Yeah, so I know it's been said traps are really deadly in old school gaming. Um, so if you if you wander over the trigger in any way, then there's a two in six chance of triggering the trap. Damage is normally automatic, so you really need to find them. Searching, searching for traps just seems a bit mean. It says here, if a character is searching in the right location, there's a base one in six chance of finding a secret door or room trap. That's base. Certain classes and types might have uh, an improvement on that. You only get one chance. That, that seems kind of, kind of mean. Even if you're looking in the right place, you've got a one in six chance of finding the trap. I don't know what people think about this. A lot of my thoughts on traps I've already done in an earlier episode. I think it might be number seven of the podcast. Do have a listen to that. Um, long years of, of, of wrangling with traps. But, but it, it just seems to me with a, with a game like this that's rules light, quite focusing on, you know, you, you're enjoying presenting the rooms, describing them. It seems to me that if, if characters work out a trap, they should be rewarded. So it seems to me if a character, if, if a player, sorry, has, um, has pretty much realised the nature of the trap and the trigger, um, when they then go and look for the trap, I don't think they should have a one in six chance. I think they should get some kind of break there. This seems to me overly mean, overly directed against the characters. I don't mind a little character death. Point of a rules life game, rules like game, sorry, is that you can be free with your character death. You can roll someone up straight away. I know this, but that just seems a little bit too, um, too. You know, I, I I think that's that's designed for referees who really want <laughs> their traps to be triggered rather than found. Um, so that sequence of play, yeah, you get that for Wilderness Adventures, that covers everything. So you get an end of day um, check rather than an end of turn check where you look to rations, spell durations, need to rest and so on. But I really like that presentation and then the various things that you need, getting lost and so on for your, for your hex crawl is there. Um, your hex crawl or your square crawl, I think in the earliest editions a lot of the um, wilderness maps were still on squares. Um, as I say, there's a sequence of play for waterborne adventuring. 
Then you've got your double page rules for encounters. You get your encounter sequence that takes you through a turn, rules for surprise, initiative, what distance encounters happened at, um, possible character actions, uh, monster reaction roles were included in here again. Everything you want is in one place. Evasion. Um, and then, yeah, the opportunity to, to evade. I really like that. Is is flagged up. So before we get to the combat rules, we have a double page spread on evasion and pursuit. How to run away. Because, of course, we know in old school gaming that... Um, uh, balanced combat counters are not particularly important there and not the order of the day so it's nice here that all the rules for running away are presented on the double page spread I really enjoy that another tantalizing empty lovely I'm sure double page artwork there then you've got combat all of your relevant combat rules fit onto a double page fantastic Rules here I hadn't seen. I've seen them in other sort of variants. Slow weapons. Slow weapons act last in the round. I didn't know that. Um, individual initiative modified by dex is an optional rule. Uh, monster morale. Missile attacks. Missile attacks. Everything you want. Double page spread. You've then got some other combat issues on a double page spread. And I like the presentation here. These are all the other... Actually, that's only on one page. Other combat issues is on one page and then morale is on the other page. Um, these are these are the questions you get asked in play. What if I don't want to kill them? What happens when I'm attacking unarmed, attacking from behind, and so on. All in one place. Really good. Monster morale is presented as an optional rule. You've then got rules for retainers, rules for vehicles, all the things which you quite happily skip until you've been playing for a, for a little while. Um... Magic, yeah, the core magic rules again are on a double page spread. Things I enjoy here, um, concentration. Yeah, there's rules about concentration, but the concentration rules basically say, yeah, you hand wave that. Um, I really like that. <laughs> concentration, yeah, it's up to the referee to dis describe what kinds of actions break concentration. Great. Uh, notes here on stacking, what stacks, what doesn't. Um, Clarification for both arcane and divine magic, um, what memorising spells means. Um, you can't read from captured spell books as standard. Uh, yeah, I like that again. It's all on a double page spread and all pretty clear. Uh, rules on magical research, rules on designing your own spells. Um, doesn't seem as fiddly as it has done in other versions of the rules because yeah all the rules on spellbooks are on one page all the rules on magical research are on one page i like that getting on to monsters monsters are treated really really light i suppose it's something i haven't spent so much so much time on those old monster stat blocks stat blocks um so i haven't seen through to the base of a monster um and i often say about some of these old school spirit games yeah it's great with the monsters all you need is a level and off you go but actually that is pretty much the case here um, if you're using the uh, the ascending armor class rules then your, your monster is really light actually it has hit dice an attack bonus that corresponds with those hit dice um, even working out the XP values are pretty standard there are there's a flat XP value attached to number of hit dice and then you get some rules on how to modify that if the monster has special abilities but basically you can get away um, with just a number of hit dice for your monster an attack bonus to correspond 
um, and if you want to add some funky abilities you know that's just going to raise the XP value a little bit um, but actually that makes that makes monster creation on the fly um, much easier than I, than, than I had in mind that it was um, with one fiddly bit monsters need a list of saves by hit dice because they'll be resisting characters spells that just seems like a whole extra line on a monster description which is only there because of a clunky um, a clunky bit of the rule system which which loads of other um, uh, old school spirit games fix um, so that's just my one frustration that as you know come up with a monster pretty quickly but then you're going to need to look up its appropriate line on the table for what its saves are just a slight frustration getting in then to the rules for yeah useful tables um, for monster saving throws and so on getting to the to the rules for referees on running adventures is a reasonably short and sweet which i like um there's a paragraph, the obligatory paragraph on metagaming is in there on page 57. Um, <laughs> notes on um, managing player grudges or rivalries. Notes on maintaining challenge. As I've said, what you don't get here is notes on designing balanced combat encounters. That is just not a part of this rule set. But you do get that lovely double page spread on running away, <laughs> which is really good. Um, pages 60 to 61, you get a list of suggested adventure types. I uh, really like that actually, you know, what kind of game is this? Banishing ancient evil, clearing ruins, contacting a lost civilization, escaping from captivity, exploring unknown territory, performing a quest, rescuing captives, scouting an enemy outpost, seeking a magical doorway, visiting a sacred site. Lovely. Um, pretty comprehensive, I think. Uh, then you get some random tables. I haven't really spent much time on these, but there's a nice random table for dungeon setting, room contents in a dungeon... Um, notes on designing a wilderness notes on designing a town awarding XP just one page on awarding XP nice and simple then a few pages on treasures and here's where you get your classic treasure tables uh, lots of D percentile rolling i feel justified d100 is is described in the technical terminology in this game as d percentile lots of people have been thrown by the title of my podcast um but we always used to call it d percentile when we were rolling on a d100 table oh other bits of advice for the for the referee is offered you never reveal the stats of your monster never give that away um amongst other guidance that we're giving here given here on on how to handle monsters as i say um referees aren't told to balance encounters but they are told to consider when using monsters tactically um the motivation of the monsters whether they would stay and fight whether they would run away whether they're intelligent monsters how that invest, uh, affects their tactics and whether they might be inclined to use teamwork um, basically how smart the monsters are going to be about maximising their lethality um, in relation to the rules. Interesting note on page 56 about randomness. I feel I should read this just given the nature of, of my podcast intentions. The referee should make judicious use of die rolls, random tables, etc. While these can add an element of fun and unpredictability to the game, overuse of randomness can also spoil an adventure by derailing it too much. Derailing it too much. I would just say, yes, the whole point of randomness is that it derails your preset 
story. Uh, and I, I feel that the emergent story is often much more fun than than you know letting the referee basically write a plot for the characters to move around with. But I move around within. But I understand that there is there are matters of taste there. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Um, so overall, yeah, this this is one where I would really encourage people to respond to me. Um, really encourage people to tell me how it is that I don't understand the nature of old school gaming and the old school rule set. I think I do understand the spirit of old school gaming. I was playing at this time. I was playing different rule sets, um, but I just really enjoy those rule sets which which fix a lot of these weirder accumulated elements. Um, but but I fully expect to be taken to task by people who've got more nostalgia for it. Um, but if you do want to respond to anything I've said, please do leave me a message on Anchor. That's the easiest way. Um, my email and my uh, Twitter, t- Twitter handle are in the show notes. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you about Old School Essentials and I'll catch you soon. Bye.